Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll be looking at the first verse of that chapter on this very exciting Unification Day. Uh, I'm reminded as I was getting ready this morning of the verse that says, If one may put a thousand to flight, two may put ten thousand. And may God bless this unification of His church. Ezra chapter 10 verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to your word this morning. Let us hear the message that your Spirit has for this church. And even more, make us us hearers and doers of the Word, and not hearers only. Let us hear the message that you have for us, and not seek the message that you have for others. Let us watch and guard our own hearts and hear what your Spirit speaks in loving words to our hearts. Come unto me. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today we begin the final chapter of this book. And in many ways, this chapter provides a fitting climax to the book. I I trust I'm not spoiling the ending for you to tell you that there's a great revival that breaks out among God's people and this 10th chapter is the record of that awakening. We can all be thankful that the Holy Spirit has included this chapter in the canon of Scripture because without it, the story of Israel prior to the Messiah would not be complete. What would we have if we didn't see this great revival? We would see that the off-straying Israel finally carried off into captivity. And then when they were returned, released through the grace of God to return to the land of promise, they began to return also to the idolatry that had brought God's judgment on them in the first place. They had married the idolaters of the land. They had become partners with them. In short, they had assimilated with the false religions and philosophies that were in the land. They may have said to themselves, we aren't idolaters, we're simply tolerant of their opinions. But because they respected the opinions of the idolaters of the land, they didn't even try to bring them to the one true God. They were only a single generation away from returning to the exact same sin, worshiping other gods that had brought God's wrath on them and their grandfathers. I have it many times in this series in Ezra tried to demonstrate the perilous position of the church of the United States for we sit right here in Alex City on the same knife's edge. How many people would we condemn to hell because we failed to share the redeeming power of the gospel 
all because we didn't want to cause them offense. Please understand, the question has nothing to do with God's election. It has everything to do with whether we, the church, are relentlessly presenting the gospel lovingly, persuasively, and passionately. Whether we will love God and be completely devoted to Him. Whether we will love our neighbor as ourself. Or whether we will sit by and watch people make eternally fatal choices and not try to warn them of the wrath to come. And the soul means that God has provided for escape. Because the only way anyone will escape God's wrath is through faith in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. They must know, they must be told that their life is hanging by a thread and eternity is looming. They must know that God's wrath is merciless except for those who find mercy by being joined with Jesus Christ. You, and I mean you as in each one of us, sit in the same position as the people who are gathering around Ezra in our text today. You have a choice to be affected by the holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, love, and kindness of God through Jesus Christ, or whether you will simply take these benefits for granted and continue to be friends with the world. Thank God for chapter 10. In this chapter, we will see the Word of God break through to His people, bringing them to renewal, to revival, and to restoration. We see God's mercy poured out into a huge gathering of His people. The evidence of God's grace expressing itself as always in repentance and faith. The people weeping bitterly over their sin and begging God for mercy that He is more than willing to dispense on all who believe. And notice, this is not simply an intellectual revival or a revival just among the leadership of the temple. Not a revival simply among the priests, although that was long overdue as well. The priests, priests and the Levites were included to be sure. But this revival, we see that the Holy Spirit makes sure we know that there were men, women, and children among those who came to weep with Ezra. This was not limited to the leadership of the temple, to the priests who were responsible for the worship of the people. God lavished repentance on all people. Now I don't mean on every person, but all who would be called to Him. Chapter 10 points to Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. And we see the mercy of God poured out on His people and the acts of repentance that followed. We'll see much of God's work recorded for us in the coming weeks. But for the rest of our time today, I would draw your attention to the last phrase of verse 1. For the people wept bitterly. All great 
revivals follow the same pattern when they are from God. Prayer, repentance, and devotion. The Great Awakening, which caught fire in England and in the colonies of America in the 1730s and 40s, was known for the deep repentance of the Christians of that day. It is said that when Jonathan Edwards preached his most remembered sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he was interrupted many times by people weeping and mourning and crying out, What must I do to be saved? And lest you think it was Edwards' fiery style that brought this effect, it wasn't. Edwards was incredibly nearsighted. And so he tended to hold his sermon up where he could read it. He read it verbatim and did so in a persuasive, gentle tone, not a loud and overpowering manner. You could look at another revival, the Korean revival in 1907, where we are told that different missionaries and Korean leaders had charge of the evening's meetings, all seeking to show the need of the Spirit's control in our lives and the necessity for love and for righteousness. After a short sermon, man after man would rise, confess his sin, break down, and weep, and then throw himself on the floor and beat the floor with his fists in a perfect agony of conviction. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out into audible prayer. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out into uncontrollable weeping and we would all weep together. We couldn't help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 a.m. with confession and weeping and praying. We had prayed to God for an outpouring of His Holy Spirit upon the people, and it had come. As we look at our text today, we see, though, that Ezra didn't preach a sermon at all. There's nothing here like Peter's sermon at Pentecost, or Paul's sermon in Athens at Mars Hill. In that same verse, Of chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Ezra was on the ground, face down, praying and weeping to God. This is certainly not a persuasive pose. At least not one designed to persuade people. Because Ezra was talking to God not to the people around him. God is the one he is trying to persuade and he is praying that God would give them repentance. That brings us then to the most disturbing question in this verse. Why were the people around Ezra weeping? We're given no context for these people. We don't know who they are or where they've come from. All we know is that they've shown up in the temple 
at the time when Ezra is crying out to God in prayer. But please allow me to illustrate why I think this question is important. If you were coming to church this morning, and just outside the building, there was a man lying face down on the ground, praying and crying out to God, what would you do? For many, given only those circumstances, we might just step around him and come inside. Perhaps thinking he might be a bit of a religious fanatic, maybe even wondering if some authorities needed to be called. Others might respond with compassion, seeking to discover what has the man so worked up, perhaps trying to comfort him in some way. But very few, I think, would join in his weeping, even if his points were valid, even if we were aware of the sinfulness of what he is confessing. It's just so far afield from what we normally experience. Now, some may try to indict modern men. In one commentary I consulted, there was a suggestion that the people's tears were based on a cultural sympathy. And that is that in the Israeli culture, people are encouraged to weep with one another. But I'm really skeptical of that. Are we to believe that those around Ezra were more naturally soft-hearted than people today? Recall, these are the people who had been actively breaking the law of God. And do you think that Anytime they ever saw someone weeping in public, they stopped and wept with them, especially strangers. As I look at the passage in its context, I would be remiss if I allowed myself to digress into complaining about modern culture. Because I don't think that we are less soft-hearted than those people who wept with Ezra that day. Complaining about culture is, in my experience, what preachers do when they stop preaching the Word of God. Empty preachers complain about society while offering nothing else because they can get hearty amens when they talk about the evils of society. But unless I am addressing the sins of the people of this congregation and working to apply to them the blood of Jesus Christ, I am not performing my calling. Because the preacher and the local church is not called upon to change the entire world. Just our part of it. Just like no one soldier has the responsibility for winning the entire war, that one soldier is simply called to do his duty where he is commanded to be. And so in looking at these weeping people, I would like to look at four reasons that they would be weeping and mourning along with Ezra today. The first reason by far the most important, is that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is certainly the most obvious reason, and we'll see that all the other reasons grow out of this undeniable fact. 
John 16, 8. When Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit into the world, it says, And He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the prophet Zechariah, as you may, call, may recall, who prophesied toward the beginning of the book of Ezra, says this in chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah says, people, my people will weep because the spirit has been poured out on them. The Spirit is the one who effectually applies faith to the heart, leading to this kind of repentance. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Some may shed tears over sin like Judas, the betrayer, who felt remorse for his betrayal, but never found repentance. The sorrow of the Spirit brings in His work and it brings forth repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so the people were weeping because the Spirit had brought them there and was breaking their hearts. They had heard the law of God. They had seen the man of God. And the Spirit had orchestrated it all. The second reason that these people are weeping is that their hearts are being softened. We see in the 10th chapter of Ezra the first fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 36 beginning in verse 25. When God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. What we see here at the end of Ezra in this culminating chapter is that God is pouring His Spirit out on them. He is softening their heart and He is bringing them back to Him. He is making for Himself a people who will follow. Because hard hearts shed no tears. These tears of mourning over sin are only possible when the Spirit has softened the heart enough to weep them. Hard hearts defend sin. Softened hearts break over sin. 
hard hearts defy God. Softened hearts seek Him. And even the way the hardened heart uses Scripture is different. Because the hard heart can use Scripture. But for the one whose heart is hard, all Scripture is either ammunition or false comfort. I say false comfort because the Scripture offers no comfort at all except through Jesus Christ. We can post verses of comfort on our social media for all to see, but without Jesus, they are no more powerful than a Hallmark card. God, through the Scripture, has no intention of providing comfort or hope to those who are not in Jesus Christ. The only hope the Scripture provides is through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's message for those who are outside of Christ is repent because God's wrath is coming. And so don't be telling people out there that God causes everything to work together for good for everybody because that's just quoting half a verse. Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For the one whose heart is softened by the Spirit, they will be led to obedience and humility. 1 John 3.24 says, The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him. And He in Him, we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. The third reason I would suggest that the people are weeping in this passage today is that they have a genuine love for God and for His people. For those people who are gathering around Ezra, they have been troubled by the sin of their people for a long time. Because for every preacher who comes to proclaim God's Word, there are quite possibly hundreds who day after day pray fervently for God's intervention in the sin around them. Revivals like this don't happen without much prayer. I would remind you, of the passage we read in Acts this morning in our Scripture reading. If you notice, it began a little bit before we began reading that Peter was taking a nap up on the roof. And three times he had a vision. And as soon as he awoke, there were men from Cornelius who were there to take him to Cornelius because Cornelius had had a vision. And so he went straight away. He was there the next day. And when Cornelius tells his story, what does he say? Four days ago, I had a vision from God. So God was preparing Cornelius two or three days before he informed Peter of what was going on. God moves through ordinary people 
He moves us to pray. It's not just the one who stands up and proclaims the Word of God. It is important for those who pray to pray diligently that God's Spirit would be poured out. An awakening will not happen in our city or in our time unless we are broken before God about the sin around us. And I'm not talking about the sin of the world. I'm talking about the sin in the church. Can we agonize over each other's sin? Do we agonize over each other's sin? Even if we're not even sure of its nature, do we lift each other up in prayer, knowing that there is sin that needs to be mortified? Brothers and sisters, that is godly love. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul is sitting in prison, writing to the Colossians, and saying, pray that God will use where I am sitting now, to open the Word of God. Pray for me that I won't stray from what God has told me to speak. As a preacher, I need your prayers. Your brothers and sisters here need your prayers. And if we have urgently spent ourselves in prayer inside our rooms, when we see the outpouring of God's Spirit, we will weep at that time. For the people who wept with Ezra, their hearts may have been long prepared by God for this day. And the prayer that he prayed echoed the words they had spoken in private for so long. They were ready to lend their voice in prayer to God Almighty for the great thing He was doing. And then finally, the fourth reason that they may have been weeping is that they are brought to realize the depth of their sin. As I've said before, the one common evidence of an encounter with the holiness of God is the recognition of the depth of our own sin. We've talked about Moses. We've talked about Joshua and Isaiah who, have real, who all realized their sin immediately when they went into the presence of God. There's a complete difference between realizing you are a sinner and realizing the depth of your sin. The first is intellectual. I know I'm a sinner. And you may could even list your sins and that recital however, can be done with no tears, without sorrow. Perhaps you may be able to manufacture some tears to make you feel more repentant. But simply realizing that you sin is not enough. When you come face to face with the depth of your sin 
There is no pretense. There is no acting. A person who sees how evil that sin that they thought so little of is, that person will wail in sorrow and in mourning. But in understanding the depth of your sin is not accomplished by studying your sin. It's accomplished only by time in the presence of God in prayer and through His Word. That's how we encounter Him. And when we realize the depth of our sin, we can never look at someone else and declare, at least I'm better than he is. Because we realize how deep those spots are on us. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. We are not complete yet. The work of sanctification continues. The work of making us more conformed to the image of Christ continues. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Conviction is not repentance. Conviction leads to repentance. But you can be convicted without repentance. And so as you see the sin in your own life, as you pray for the sin in the life of your brothers and sisters. Understand the depth of that sin by looking at the holiness of God, the perfection that He gives. And don't look at His holiness and say, oh, we'll never get there. That is where He is taking us. That is where we one day will be. One day we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. That's the promise for us. That's the promise for believers. That one day we will reach the finish line. And so let us pray that God is preparing a great work for our time, for our people. Pray urgently, above everything, pray urgently. And let the Holy Spirit break your heart as you meditate day after day on the holiness of God. Let's pray. Our Father, Sometimes the hardest thing to confess is that our eyes are dry. That we've spent too long staring at the sin of the world, condemning the world in our own hearts, and not nearly enough time staring into the beauty of your holiness and recognizing the wicked ways that are in us. Let us weep for our sin. Confront us 
with your perfect, holy standard and know that your spirit within us will work within us sanctification day after day. Teach us to put away sin rather than hiding sin. Teach us to kill it in our own hearts whenever it is found. And Father, let us lift each other up because everyone here struggles with one sin or another, even if we don't know what that sin is. Let us be constantly lifting each other up. Because God, you are our comfort. If we are found in you, you speak comfort to your people. You speak forgiveness and mercy to your people. You cause all things together to work together for good for those who love you, who are the called according to your purpose. Father, make our encounters stronger and more humbling when we encounter you. Let us walk constantly in your spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, Our Lord, amen.